Good evening. Welcome to the Just Sleep Podcast. I'm Tasha, your host. Every week, I will read you an old story to help you relax, put the stressful day behind you, and drift off to sleep. Occasionally, we will run ads in order to cover the costs of the production of the podcast. Rest assured, there will be no ads during or after the story. If you prefer an ad-free and intro-free show, you can join Just Sleep Premium. Visit justsleeppodcast.com slash support for more information. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Tonight, I will be reading Journey to the Center of the Earth by Jules Verne. So lie down. Close your eyes and let me read you a story. Chapter 1. The Professor and His Family On the 24th of May, 1863, my uncle, 
Professor Liedenbrock, rushed into his little house, number 19 Königstrasse, one of the oldest streets in the oldest portion of the city of Hamburg. Martha must have concluded that she was very much behind, for the dinner had only just been put into the oven. Well now, said I to myself, if that most impatient of men is hungry, what a disturbance he will make. Mr. Liedenbrock so soon, cried poor Martha, in great alarm, half opening the dining room door. Yes, Martha, but very likely the dinner is not even half cooked, for it is not two yet. St. Michael's clock is only just struck half past one. Then why has the master come home so soon? Perhaps he will tell us that himself. Here he is, Monsieur Axel. I will run and hide myself while you argue with him. And Martha retreated in safety into her own dominions. I was left alone. But how is it possible for a man of my undecided turn of mind to argue successfully with so irascible a person as the professor? With this persuasion, I was hurrying away to my own little retreat upstairs when the street door creaked upon its hinges. Heavy feet made the whole flight of stairs to shake and the master of the house, passing rapidly through the dining room, threw himself in haste into his own study. But on his rapid way, he had found time to fling his hazel stick into a corner, his rough, broad-brim hat upon the table, and these few emphatic words at his nephew. Axel, follow me. I scarcely had time to move when the professor was shouting again after me. What? Not come yet? And I rushed into my redoubtable master's study. Otto Liedenbrock had no mischief in him. I willingly allow that. But unless he very considerably changes as he grows older, at the end, he will be a most original character. He was professor at the Johanneum. I was delivering a series of lectures on mineralogy in the course of every one of which he broke into a passion once or twice at least. Not at all that he was over-anxious about the improvement of his class or about the degree of attention with which they listened to him or the success which might eventually crown his labours. Such little matters of detail never troubled him much. His teaching was, as the German philosophy calls it, subjective. It was to benefit himself, not others. He was a learned egotist. He was a well of science, and the pulleys worked uneasily when you tried to draw anything out of it. In a word, he was a learned miser. Germany has quite a few professors of this sort. To his misfortune, my uncle was not gifted with a sufficiently rapid utterance. Not to be sure when he was talking at home, but certainly in his public delivery. This is a want much to be deplored in a speaker. The fact is that during the course of his lectures at the Johanneum, the professor often came to a complete standstill. He fought with willful words that refused to pass his struggling lips. Such words that resist and stem the cheeks, and at last break out into the unasked-for shape of a round and most unscientific oath. Then his fury would gradually abate. Now in mineralogy there are many half-Greek and half-Latin terms, very hard to articulate, 
and which would be most trying to a poet's measures. I don't wish to say a word against so respectable a science, far be that from me. True, in the august presence of rhombohedral crystals, retinasphaltic resins, galenites, phaseites, molybdenites, tongue states of manganese and titanate of zirconium. Why the most facile of tongues may make a slip now and then. It therefore happened that this venial fault of my uncle's came to be pretty well understood in time, and an unfair advantage was taken of it. The students laid wait for him in dangerous places, and when he began to stumble, loud was the laughter, which is not in good taste, not even in Germans. And if there was always a full audience to honour the Liedenbrock courses, I should be sorry to conjecture how many came to make merry at my uncle's expense. Nevertheless, my good uncle was a man of deep learning, a fact I am most anxious to assert and reassert. Sometimes he might irretrievably injure a specimen by his too great ardour in handling it, but still he united the genius of a true geologist with the keen eye of the mineralogist. Armed with his hammer, his steel pointer, his magnetic needles, his blowpipe, and his bottle of nitric acid, he was a powerful man of science. He would refer any mineral to its proper place along the 600 elementary substances now enumerated by its fracture, its appearance, its hardness, its fusibility, its sonorousness, its smell, and its taste. The name of Liedenbrock was honorably mentioned in colleges and learned societies. Humphrey Davy, Humboldt, Captain Sir John Franklin, General Sabine, never failed to call upon him on their way through Hamburg. Bacquerel, Ebelman, Brewster, Dumas, Milne Edwards, Sinclair de Ville frequently consulted him upon the most difficult problems in chemistry, a science which was indebted to him for considerable discoveries. For in 1853, there had appeared at Leipzig an imposing folio by Otto Liedenbrock entitled A Treatise Upon Transcendental Chemistry with Illustrations, a work, however, which failed to cover its expenses. To all these titles to honour, let me add that my uncle was the curator of the Museum of Mineralogy, formed by Mr. Struve, the Russian ambassador, a most valuable collection, the fame of which is European. Such was the man who addressed me in that impetuous manner. Fancy a tall, spare man, of an iron constitution, and with a fair complexion that took off a good ten years from the fifty he must own to. His restless eyes were in an incessant motion behind his full-sized spectacles. His long, thin nose was like a knife blade. Boys have been heard to remark that that organ was magnetized and attracted iron filings. But this was merely a mischievous report. It had no attraction except for snuff, which it seemed to draw to itself in great quantities. When I have added, to complete my portrait, that my uncle walked by mathematical strides of a yard and a half, and that in walking he kept his fists firmly closed, a sure sign of an irritable temperament, I think I shall have said enough to disenchant anyone who should by mistake have coveted his company. He lived in his own little house in Konigstrasse, a structure half brick and half wood, with a gable cut into steps. 
and looked upon one of those winding canals which intersect each other in the middle of the ancient quarter of Hamburg, and which the great fire of 1842 had fortunately spared. It is true that the old house stood slightly off the perpendicular and bulged out a little towards the street. Its roof sloped a little to one side, like the cap over the left ear of a Tugendbund student. Its lines wanted accuracy, but after all, it stood firm, thanks to an old elm which buttressed it in front, and which in spring often sent its young sprays through the window panes. My uncle was tolerably well off for a German professor. The house was his own and everything in it. The living contents were his goddaughter, Groiben, a young Verlandaise of seventeen, Martha and myself. As his nephew and an orphan, I became his laboratory assistant. I freely confess that I was exceedingly fond of geology and all its kindred sciences. The blood of a mineralogist was in my veins, and in the midst of my specimens I was always happy. In a word, a man might live happily enough in the little old house in Konigstrasse, in spite of the restless impatience of its master. For although he was a little too excitable, he was very fond of me. But the man had no notion how to wait. Nature herself was too slow for him. In April, after he had planted in the terracotta pots outside his window, seedling plants of mignonette and convolvulus, he would go and give them a little pull by their leaves to make them grow faster. In dealing with such a strange individual, there was nothing for it but prompt obedience. I therefore rushed after him. Chapter 2 A Mystery to be Solved at Any Price That study of his was a museum and nothing else. Specimens of everything known in mineralogy lay there in their places in perfect order and correctly named, divided into inflammable, metallic, and lithoid minerals. How well I knew all these bits of science. Many a time, instead of enjoying the company of lads of my own age, I had preferred dusting these graphites, anthracites, coals, lignites, and peats. And there were bitumens, resins, organic salts to be protected from the least grain of dust, and metals from iron to gold, metal whose current value altogether disappeared in the presence of the republican equality of scientific specimens and stones, too, enough to rebuild entirely the house in Konigstrasse, even with a handsome additional room, which would have suited me admirably. But on entering the study now, I thought of none of all these wonders. My uncle alone filled my thoughts. He had thrown himself into a velvet easy chair, and was grasping between his hands a book over which he bent, pondering with intense admiration. Here's a remarkable book. What a wonderful book, he was exclaiming. These ejaculations brought to my mind the fact that my uncle was liable to occasional fits of bibliomania, but no old book had any value in his eyes unless it had the virtue of being nowhere else to be found, or at any rate, of being illegible. Well now, don't you see it yet? Why, I've got a priceless treasure that I found this morning while rummaging in old Avelius's shop. Magnificent, I replied, with a good imitation of enthusiasm. What was the good of all this fuss about an old quarto, bound in rough calf, a yellow faded volume with a ragged seal hanging from it? 
but for all that, there was no lull yet in the admiring exclamations of the professor. See, he went on, both asking the questions and supplying the answers. Isn't it a beauty? Yes, splendid. Did you ever see such a binding? Doesn't the book open easily? Yes, it stays open anywhere. But does it shut equally well? Yes, for the binding and the leaves are flush, all in a straight line, and no gaps or openings anywhere. And look at its back, after 700 years. Why, Bozerian, Kloss, or Purgold might have been proud of such a binding. While rapidly making these comments, my uncle kept opening and shutting the old tome. I really could do no less than ask a question about its contents, although I did not feel that slightest interest. What is the title of this marvellous work, I asked, with an affected eagerness, which he must have been very blind not to see through. This work, replied my uncle, firing up with renewed enthusiasm, this work is the Heims Kringla of Snorri Turlson, the most famous Icelandic author of the 12th century. It is the chronicle of the Norwegian princes who ruled in Iceland. Indeed, I cried, keeping up wonderfully. Of course it is, a German translation. What? sharply replied the professor. A translation? What should I do with a translation? This is the Icelandic original, in the magnificent idiomatic vernacular, which is both rich and simple, and admits an infinite variety of grammatical combinations and verbal modifications. Like German, I happily ventured. Yes, replied my uncle, shrugging his shoulders. But in addition to all this, the Icelandic has three numbers, like the Greek, and irregular declensions of proper nouns, like the Latin. Ah, said I, a little moved out of my indifference. And is the type good? Type? What do you mean by talking of type, wretched Axel? Type? Do you take it for a printed book, you ignorant fool? It is a manuscript, a runic manuscript. Runic? Yes. Do you want me to explain what that is? Of course not, I replied in the tone of an injured man. But my uncle persevered and told me, against my will, of many things I cared nothing about. Runic characters were in use in Iceland in former ages. They were invented, it is said, by Odin himself. Look there and wonder, impious young man, and admire these letters the invention of the Scandinavian god. Well, well, not knowing what to say, I was going to prostrate myself before this wonderful book, a way of answering equally pleasing to gods and kings, and which was the advantage of never giving them any embarrassment, when a little incident happened to divert the conversation into another channel. This was the appearance of a dirty slip of parchment which slipped out of the volume and fell to the floor. My uncle pounced upon this shred with incredible avidity. An old document, enclosed in immemorial time within the folds of this book, had for him an immeasurable value. What's this, he cried. And he laid out upon the table a piece of parchment, five inches by three, and along which were traced certain mysterious characters. Here is the exact facsimile. I think it is important to let these strange signs be publicly known but they were the means of drawing on Professor Liedenbrock and his nephew to undertake the most wonderful expedition 
of the 19th century. The professor mused a few moments over this series of characters. Then, raising his spectacles, he pronounced, These are runic letters. They're exactly like those of the manuscript of Snorri Turleson. But what on earth is their meaning? Runic letters appearing to my mind to be an invention of the learned to mystify this poor world. I was not sorry to see my uncle suffering the pangs of mystification. At least, so it seemed to me, judging from his fingers, which were beginning to work with terrible energy. It is certainly old Icelandic, he muttered between his teeth. And Professor Liedenbrock must have known, for he was acknowledged to be quite a polyglot. Not that he could speak fluently in the 2,000 languages and 12,000 dialects which are spoken on the earth, but he knew at least his share of them. So he was going, in the presence of this difficulty, to give way to all the impetuosity of his character, and I was preparing for a violent outbreak when two o'clock struck by the little timepiece over the fireplace. At that moment, our good housekeeper Martha opened the study door, saying, Dinner is ready. I'm afraid he sent that soup to where it would boil away to nothing, and Martha took to her heels for safety. I followed her, and hardly knowing how I got there, I found myself seated in my usual place. I waited a few minutes. No professor came. Never within my remembrance had he missed the important ceremonial of dinner. And yet, what a good dinner it was. There was parsley soup, an omelette of ham garnished with spice sorrel, a fillet of veal with compote of prunes, for dessert, crystallized fruit, the whole washed down with a sweet moselle. All this my uncle was going to sacrifice to a bit of old parchment. As an affectionate and attentive nephew, I considered it my duty to eat for him as well as for myself, which I did conscientiously. I've never known such a thing, said Martha. Mr. Liedenbrock is not at table. Who could have believed it, I said, with my mouth full. Something serious is going to happen, said the servant, shaking her head. My opinion was that nothing more serious would happen than an awful scene when my uncle should have discovered that his dinner was devoured. I had come to the last of the fruit when a very loud voice tore me away from the pleasures of my dessert. With one spring, I bounded out of the dining room into the study. Chapter 3 The Runic Writing Exercises the Professor Undoubtedly it is runic, said the professor, bending his eyebrows. But there is a secret in it, and I mean to discover the key. A violent gesture finished the sentence. Sit there, he added, holding out his fist towards the table. Sit there and write. I was seated in a trice. Now I will dictate to you every letter of our alphabet that corresponds with each of these Icelandic characters. We will see what that will give us. But by St. Michael, if you should dare to deceive me. The dictation commenced. I did my best. Every letter was given me one after the other, with remarkable result. When this work was ended, my uncle tore the paper from me and examined it attentively for a long time. What does it all mean? He kept repeating mechanically. Upon my honor, I could not have enlightened him. Besides, he did not ask me, and he went on talking to himself. This is what is called a cryptogram, or cipher, he said. 
in which letters are purposely thrown in confusion, which, if properly arranged, would reveal their sense. Only think that under this jargon there may lie concealed the clue to some great discovery. As for me, I was of the opinion that there was nothing at all in it, though, of course, I took care not to say so. Then the professor took the book and the parchment and diligently compared them together. These two writings are not by the same hand, he said. The cipher is of a later date than the book, and I immediately see an irrefutable proof of it. The first letter is a double M, a letter that is not to be found in Turleson's book, and that was only added to the alphabet in the 14th century. Therefore, there are 200 years between the manuscript and the document. I admitted that this was a strictly logical conclusion. I am therefore led to imagine, continued my uncle, that some possessor of this book wrote these mysterious letters. But who was that possessor? Is his name nowhere to be found in the manuscript? My uncle raised his spectacles, took up a strong lens, and carefully examined the blank pages of the book. On the front of the second, the title page, he noticed a sort of stain that looked like an ink blot. But in looking at it very closely, he thought he could distinguish some half-effaced letters. My uncle at once fastened upon this as the centre of interest, and he laboured at that blot, until, by the help of his microscope, he ended by making out the following runic characters which he read without difficulty. Arn Sacknesum, he cried in triumph, while that is the name of another Icelander, a savant of 16th century, a celebrated alchemist. I gazed at my uncle with satisfactory admiration. Those alchemists, he resumed, Avicenna, Bacon, Lully, Paracelsus, were the real and only savants of their time. They made discoveries at which we were astonished. Has not this Sacknesum concealed, under his cryptogram, some surprising invention? It is so. It must be so. The professor's imagination took fire at this hypothesis. No doubt, I ventured to reply, but what interest would he have in thus hiding so marvellous a discovery? Why? Why? How can I tell? Did not Galileo do the same by Saturn? We shall see. I will get at the secret of this document, and I will neither sleep nor eat until I've found it out. My comment on this was a half-suppressed, oh. Nor you either, Axel, he added. The deuce, said I to myself and it is lucky I have eaten two dinners today. First of all, we must find out the key to this cipher. That cannot be difficult. At these words I quickly raised my head, but my uncle went on soliloquizing. There's nothing easier. In this document, there are 132 letters, viz. 77 consonants and 55 vowels. This is the proportion found in southern languages, while northern tongues are much richer in consonants. Therefore, this is in a southern language. These were fair conclusions, I thought. But what language is it? Here I looked for a display of learning, but I met instead with profound analysis. This Sacknesum, he went on, was a very well-informed man. Now since he was not writing in his own mother tongue, he would naturally select the language that was currently adopted by the choice spirits of the 16th century. I mean, Latin. 
If I'm mistaken, I can but try Spanish, French, Italian, Greek, or Hebrew. But the savants of the 16th century generally wrote in Latin. I'm therefore entitled to announce this, a priori, to be Latin. It is Latin. I jumped up in my chair. My Latin memories rose in revolt against the notion that these barbarous words could belong to the sweet language of Virgil. Yes, it is Latin, my uncle went on, but it is Latin confused and in disorder. Perturbata sau inordinante, as Euclid has said it. Very well, thought I. If you can bring order out of that confusion, my dear uncle, you are a clever man. Let us examine carefully, said he again, taking up the leaf upon which I had written. Here is a series of 132 letters in apparent disorder. There are words consisting of consonants only, such as R, N, L, L, S. Others, on the other hand, in which vowels predominate, as for instance the fifth, U, N, T, E, I, E, F, or the last but one, O, S, E, I, B, O. Now this arrangement has evidently not been premeditated. It has arisen mathematically in obedience to the unknown law that is ruled in the succession of these letters. It appears to me a certainty that the original sentence was written in a proper manner and afterwards distorted by a law which we have yet to discover. Whoever possesses the key of this cipher will read it with fluency. What is that key? Axel, have you got it? I answered not a word, and for a good reason. My eyes had fallen upon a charming picture, suspended against the wall, the portrait of Groiben. My uncle's ward was at that time at Altona, staying with a relation, and in her absence I was very downhearted. For I may confess it to you now, the pretty Verlandaise and the professor's nephew loved each other with a patience and a calmness entirely German. We had become engaged unknown to my uncle, who was too much taken up with geology to be able to enter into such feelings as ours. Groiben was a lovely blue-eyed blonde, rather given to gravity and seriousness, but that did not prevent her from loving me very sincerely. As for me, I adored her, if there is such a word in the German language. Thus it happened that the picture of my pretty Verlandaise threw me, in a moment, out of the world of realities, into that memory of fancy. There looked down upon me the faithful companion of my labours and my recreations. Every day she helped me to arrange my uncle's precious specimens. She and I labelled them together. Mademoiselle Groiben was an accomplished mineralogist. She could have taught a few things to a savant. She was fond of investigating abstruse scientific questions. What pleasant hours we've spent in study, and how often I envied the very stones which she handled with her charming fingers. Then, when our leisure hours came, we used to go out together and turn into the shady avenues by the Ulster, and went happily side by side up to the old windmill, which formed such an improvement to the landscape at the head of the lake. On the road we chatted hand in hand. I told her amusing tales at which she laughed heartily. Then we reached the banks of the Elbe, and after having bid goodbye to the swans, sailing gracefully amid the white water lilies, we returned to the quay by the steamer. That is just where I was in my dream when my uncle, with a vehement thump on the table, 
dragged me back to the realities of life. Come, said he. The very first idea that would come into anyone's head to confuse the letters of a sentence would be to write the words vertically instead of horizontally. Indeed, said I. Now we must see what would be the effect of that, Axel. Put down upon this paper any sentence you like, only instead of arranging the letters in the usual way, one after the other, place them in succession in vertical columns, so as to group them together in five or six vertical lines. I caught his meaning, and immediately produced a literary wonder. Good, said the professor, without reading them. Now set down these words in a horizontal line. I obeyed. Excellent, said my uncle, taking the paper hastily out of my hands. This begins to look just like an ancient document. The vowels and the consonants are grouped together in equal disorder. There are even capitals in the middle of words, and commas too, just as in Sacknusum's parchment. I considered these remarks very clever. Now, said my uncle, looking straight at me, to read the sentence which you have just written, and with which I am wholly unacquainted, I shall have to take the first letter of each word, then the second, and the third, and so forth, and my uncle, to his great astonishment, and my much greater, read, I love you very well, my own dear Gräuben. Hallo, cried the professor. Yes, indeed. Without knowing what I was about, like an awkward and unlucky lover, I had compromised myself by writing this unfortunate sentence. Aha! Are you in love with Gräuben? he said, with the right look for a guardian. Yes, no, I stammered. You love Gräuben, he went on once or twice dreamily. Well, let us apply the process I have suggested that the document in question. My uncle, falling back into his absorbing contemplations, had already forgotten my imprudent words. I merely say imprudent, for the great mind of so learned a man, of course, had no place for love affairs, and happily the grand business of the document gained me the victory. Just as the moment of the supreme experiment arrived, the professor's eyes flashed right through his spectacles. There was a quivering in his fingers as he grasped the old parchment. He was deeply moved. At last, he gave a preliminary cough, and with a profound gravity, naming in succession the first, then the second letter of each word, he dictated to me. I confess, I felt considerably excited in coming to the end. These letters named one at a time had carried no sense to my mind. I therefore waited for the professor with great pomp to unfold the magnificent but hidden Latin of this mysterious phrase. But who could have foretold the result? A violent thump made the furniture rattle and spilled some ink, and my pen dropped from between my fingers. That's not it, cried my uncle. There's no sense in it. Then darting out like a shot, bowling down the stairs like an avalanche, he rushed into the Konigstrasse and fled. Chapter 4 The Enemy to be Starved into Submission He is gone, cried Martha, running out of her kitchen at the noise of the violent slamming of doors. Yes, I replied, completely gone. Well, and how about his dinner? said the old servant. He won't have any. And his supper? He won't have any. What? cried Martha with clasped hands. No, my dear Martha, he will eat no more. No one in the house is to eat anything at all. 
Uncle Liedenbrock is going to make us all fast until he has succeeded in deciphering an undecipherable scroll. Oh, my dear, must we then all die of hunger? I hardly dare to confess that, with so absolute a ruler as my uncle, this fate was inevitable. The old servant, visibly moved, returned to the kitchen, moaning piteously. When I was alone, I thought I would go and tell Groiben all about it. But how should I be able to escape from the house? The professor might return at any moment. And suppose he called me. And suppose he tackled me again with this algomachy, which might vainly have been set before ancient Oedipus. And if I did not obey his call, who could answer for what might happen? The wisest course was to remain where I was. A mineralogist had just sent us a collection of siliceous nodules, which I had to classify, so I set to work. I sorted, labelled, and arranged in their own glass case all these hollow specimens, in the cavity of each of which was a nest of little crystals. But this work did not succeed in absorbing all my attention. That old document kept working in my brain. My head throbbed with excitement, and I felt an undefined uneasiness. I was possessed with a presentiment of coming evil. In an hour my nodules were all arranged upon successive shelves. Then I dropped down into the old velvet armchair, my head thrown back and my hands joined over it. I lit my long crooked pipe with a painting on it of an idle-looking naiad. Then I amused myself watching the process of the conversion of the tobacco into carbon, which was by slow degrees making my naiad darker. Now and then I listened to hear whether a well-known step was on the stairs. No. Where can my uncle be at that moment? I fancied him running under the noble trees that lined the road to Altona, gesticulating, making shots with his cane, thrashing the long grass, cutting the heads off the thistles, and disturbing the contemplative storks in their peaceful solitude. Would he return in triumph or in discouragement? Which would get the upper hand, he or the secret? I was thus asking myself questions and mechanically taking between my fingers the sheet of paper mysteriously disfigured with the incomprehensible succession of letters I had written down. And I repeated to myself, what does it all mean? I sought to group the letters so as to form words. Quite impossible. When I put them together by twos, threes, fives, or sixes, nothing came of it but nonsense. To be sure, the fourteenth, fifteenth, and sixteenth letters made the English word ice. The eighty-third and two following letters made Sir, and in the midst of the document in the second and third lines, I observed the words Rota, Mutable, Ira, Neck, Atra. Come now, I thought. These words seem to justify my uncle's view about the language of the document. In the fourth line appeared the word Luco, which means a secret wood. It is true that in the third line was the word Tabaled, which looked like Hebrew and in the last, the purely French words, mer, arc, mer. All this was enough to drive a poor fellow crazy. Four different languages in this ridiculous sentence. What connection could there possibly be between such words as ice, sir, cruel, anger, sacred wood, changeable, mother, bow, and sea? The first and the last might have something to do with each other. It was not at all surprising that in a document written in Iceland there should be a mention of 
a sea of ice. But it was quite another thing to get to the end of this cryptogram of so small a clue. So I was struggling with an insurmountable difficulty. My brain got heated, my eyes watered over that sheet of paper. Its 132 letters seemed to flutter and fly around me, like those motes of mingled light and darkness that float in the air around the head when the blood is rushing upwards with undue violence. I was a prey to a kind of hallucination. I was stifling and wanted air. Unconsciously, I fanned myself with a bit of paper, the back and front of which successively came before my eyes. What was my surprise when, in one of these rapid revolutions, at the moment when the back was turned to me, I thought I caught sight of the words craterum, terrestre, and others. A sudden light burst in upon me. These hints alone gave me the first glimpse of the truth. I had discovered the key to the cipher. To read the document, it would not even be necessary to read it through the paper, such as it was, just as it had been dictated to me, so it might be spelled out with ease. All those ingenious professorial combinations were proving right. He was right as to the arrangement of the letters. He was right as to the language. He had been within a hair's breadth of reading this Latin document from end to end. But that hair's breadth chance had given to me. You may be sure I felt stirred up. My eyes were dim. I could scarcely see. I had laid the paper upon the table. At a glance, I could tell the whole secret. At last, I became more calm. I made a wise resolve to walk twice around the room quietly and settle my nerves. And then I returned into the deep gulf of the huge armchair. Now I'll read it, I cried, after having well distended my lungs with air. I leaned over the table. I laid my fingers successively upon every word. And without a pause, without one moment's hesitation, I read off the whole sentence aloud. Stupefaction. Terror. I sat overwhelmed as if with a sudden deadly blow. What? That which I had read had actually really been done. A mortal man had had the audacity to... Ah, I cried, springing up. But no, no, my uncle shall never know it. He would insist upon doing it too. He would want to know all about it. Ropes could not hold him, such a determined geologist as he is. He would start. He would, in spite of everything and everybody, and he would take me with him. And we should never get back. No, never, never. My overexcitement was beyond all description. No, it shall not be, I declared energetically. And as it is in my power to prevent the knowledge of it coming into the mind of my tyrant, I will do it. By dint of turning this document round and round, he too might discover the key. I will destroy it. There was a little fire left on the hearth. I seized not only the paper, but Sacknusum's parchment with a feverish hand. I was about to fling it all upon the coals and utterly destroy and abolish this dangerous secret when the study door opened and my uncle appeared.